Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the program grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to an even more exciting than usual edition of History Hack. That is appalling grammar, which is quite kind of... Um, unapt or inapt or basically I'm just showing that I'm inept. Um, Charlie, why am I stuttering over my words and why am I flustered about today's guest? Oh dear, Zach. Zach is fanboying quite appropriately because today we are joined by Alison Weir. She is the best-selling author and historian who has published over 30 books, selling over 3 million copies worldwide. You might know her from her Six Tudor Queens series of novels. You hopefully know her from her wonderful new book, Elizabeth of York, The Last White Rose. And that's what she's come in very kindly to speak to us about today. Hello, Alison. Hello, Charlie. Thank you so much for joining us. As I mentioned before, we're all big fans. We're all readers. So we're very much looking forward to chatting to you. Thank you you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure. (laughs) So Elizabeth of York, um, what do we know about her early life to set the scene? We we know she's the the sister of the princes in the tower, ill-fated. So I guess she must have been quite at risk during those Wars of the Roses. Well, yes, during the, I mean, her childhood was stable, her very early childhood was quite stable until her father was forced to flee. Her father was King Edward IV, and he'd emerged victorious over the House of Lancaster in 1461. She was born in 1466. But in 1470, um, her father um, had, had alienated the powerful Earl of Warwick, Warwick the Kingmaker, who'd helped to put him on the throne. And Warwick had, um, had, had risen against him and literally ousted him from the throne. This is why it was called the Kingmaker. And helped to restore and, and put back Henry VI of the House of Lancaster on the throne. And Edward fled abroad. So Elizabeth's life was 
completely thrown into turmoil at this point because with her mother and her little sisters, she her mother fled into sanctuary with, with, with her young family in Westminster Abbey. So Elizabeth was a fugitive, basically, at the age of four. And then her father came back and was victorious. Shire after shire fell to him and he came back to London. There was a joyful reunion. And um, the Queen <laughs> was able to present him with um, his firstborn son, who'd been born in sanctuary. And the, the, the chroniclers tell us it was a loving reunion. But then just after that, one of the most dramatic events of Elizabeth's young life happened, or perhaps her whole life, because she was still kept in the tower for safety while her father rode off to defeat, ultimately defeat the Earl of Warwick and the Lancastrians. And while, while he was away, the tower was bombarded by um, a Lancastrian faction. It must have been terrifying. And they were, they were, they were, they were fought off. But for a young child, you can just imagine what the noise and, and the fear must have been like. Gosh. And of course, she's got all those younger siblings as well yes. in there. She's the eldest of 10. <laughs> oh and goodness. five girls survived. At this point, there are three of them. And, um, and then, of course, her two younger brothers, the one born in, in the sanctuary, was the future Edward V. And then Richard, Duke, Duke of York, followed three years later. So they were in sanctuary for that long? No, no, no. They were in sanctuary and from, from about November, October, November 1470 until the spring of 1471. Wow. And, and then, but of they ended up in sanctuary again because when Elizabeth was only, was, was she, she was 16, her father was, oh no, 17 actually, her father died prematurely. And the throne was went past his son, Ed, who was, became Edward V at the age of 12. And the, Edward, Edward IV's brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, became Lord Protector. Uh, but within a very short time, within the time of a couple of months, just over a couple of or three months, he had seized the crown. Um, the two princes who had been living in the palace of the tower, which was perfectly normal in those days prior to a coronation, um, they disappeared from sight and were never seen again. And the Richard, Duke of Gloucester, had been crowned Richard III. And as soon as Richard, Richard of Gloucester had heard of his brother's death, he seized the young king. And at that point, Elizabeth Whitville, the queen, took her daughters and her younger son into sanctuary. And so they were in sanctuary again. They were in sanctuary for, for a year. Gosh. It's a dramatic story. I can't imagine going through all of that in your yeah. Still even just a teenager. It's well, not just that, because I mean Elizabeth had been betrothed before her before her father died, some years before her father died. She'd been betrothed to the Dauphin of France, the heir to France. She was going to be Queen of France. And this was a very grand marriage. She was addressed as Madame la Dauphine, and she was given gowns in the French fashion, taught French, of course. And you know, she was going to be a very great lady. No, no English princess has ever been a Queen of France before since the Norman Conquest. And, uh, and then, then, then she was very publicly jilted. So she had been a, a princess of the highest estate. But then suddenly, under her uncle, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, um, she and her siblings were declared bastards because he said he had evidence to show that, their, that Edward IV had been married to another woman when he married their mother. But there's no evidence there. He never produced the evidence. The matter was never laid before an ecclesiastical court. And it was just left to Parliament to just declare that the marriage was invalid, which Parliament actually didn't have the authority to do. And so Elizabeth not only lost her father, was in sanctuary, but she was declared a bastard. She ceased to be a princess and a political importance. But of course, there were those who realised that as soon as her brothers had disappeared and there were rumours that they had been murdered, 
that as the eldest of the, the daughter of the family, she was the rightful heiress of England. Gosh. Um, I'm slightly staggered by <laughs> all of that. Um, I'm not sure how you come through that as a kind of functioning human being going from all of those highs to those lows and then back and forth and um, just being thrown into war zones like that as a kid having to deal with you know your home being bombarded and, and then you're fleeing again and you come back and everything's all right and then it's not it's 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 horrific a huge um, of fortune and and it actually brought out i think the feistiness in her which we never see again after she became queen because there, there is evidence and it's all controversial there is evidence which i think i think is of sound foundation that she um she actually pushed i mean it, there was, it was clear that richard iii was interested in marrying her now a slight problem was that he was already married but he'd also got his sights on a divorce, and it was also it was it was it's pretty obvious his wife was very ill and was dying, probably tuberculosis. We don't know for certain. Uh, but he wanted to marry her, but she was his niece. You can imagine uh, public feeling about this. But it looks as if Elizabeth actually herself pushed for this marriage, and people say, why would she do that? Why would she try to marry the man who was rumored to have murdered her brothers, so he could seize the throne, the man who had her declared a bastard? Well, think of it like this. She and her mother and her younger sisters are all in sanctuary. They have no future there. The, the Abbey is surrounded by a ring of steel because they're not allowed to get out because Richard's terrified that she would go abroad and, and you know, marry some foreign prince and they would invade England and get rid of him. And um, Henry Tudor, of course, is, um, you know, this sprig of the House of Lancaster is, is claiming the English throne through her. And he's an exile on the continent at this time. But she, it looks as if she, she wanted, she, she thought this was the only way to assure a future for herself and her mother and her sisters was actually by becoming queen. And therefore, it looks as if she pushed for this. But Richard's advisors were, were absolutely horrified. They, they could see, I mean, he'd already lost a lot of support because of the rumours about the princes. And they could see what was going to happen. And as soon as his wife died in March 1485, they warned him, you cannot do this. And he publicly rejected the idea. And it, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And we have another controversial source that describes how Elizabeth secretly plotted to abet Henry Tudor and aid his bid to invade England and take the throne. This is exactly where I wanted to go next with this, because, I mean, in the notes, I just kind of put a very simple question of why marry Henry? Uh, yeah, well, Henry was, I mean, the it... <laughs> was the best option for her, because although Henry, um, the, a lot of Richard III had, had, had said he was, you know, this, called him an unknown Welshman who'd been born in double or come from double adultery. He was referring to scandals way back in the royal line, back to the time of John of Gaunt and Edward III, from whom Henry was descended. But Henry was the only viable Lancastrian candidate. And he was, and many, if you say, you know, that the, when he went to Rennes Cathedral on Christmas Day, 1483, and publicly vowed to take the realm of England and then marry Elizabeth, who, who legitimists would, would have argued was, was the rightful queen anyway, 500 Yorkists had been disaffected and were there sitting in there supporting him. And that gives you some idea of how many prominent people have been alienated from Rich, Richard. So Henry represented for Elizabeth a stable future, uh, the, you know, the rest, you know, the reversal of her bastardy and the fact he would stand for, for legitimacy. Gosh. 
It doesn't it just show how the fortunes of women at this time are so intricately bound with the fortunes of the men yeah, that yeah, protect them. Yeah. <laughs> so what's what's her married life like? Um, we know she yeah. has a lot of children. But is it a happy marriage? Seven children, seven children. And most of the evidence shows that this was a very happy and stable and supportive marriage. She was she was the perfect medieval queen. She was fruitful, pious, charitable, gentle. And and she she was she graced every ceremony with great, great elegance and aplomb. And she was very much loved. I mean, her privy purse accounts, which sadly only survived for the last year of her life, showed numerous gifts from like common people, when she when she travelled, they came, when they came to the palace. They brought her, you know, chickens and cherries in season and things like that. She was she was much much loved. And when she died, there was a huge outpouring of mourning, um, comparable probably to what happened when Princess Diana died. Gosh, I guess that's because she's the orchestra heir, isn't she? You could yeah, say whatever you want to. Well, yeah, she was the she was the orchestra of the old royal line. But Henry the Seventh, of course, would never acknowledge her to be that because he did he deliberately. Um, held off marrying her until A, he'd been crowned, and B, he'd obtained a dispensation for the marriage that could perhaps have been expedited earlier. But he wanted to make it clear that he held the crown by right of conquest, and simply because he now was king. It was a fact, so Parliament has confirmed it. He did not want it said that he owed his crown to his wife, and he reigned in her right. And it, but it, it was left to Henry VIII, their son, many years later, to say that yes, the crown came to him through his mother. He acknowledged that. But so, but so, so this legitimacy was was very important for Henry, and it was it lay up and, and later Henry's later biographer Francis Bacon, who was writing well over a century later, um, wrote was so angry with Henry for ignoring Elizabeth's title to the throne. He tried to paint this marriage in as dismal terms as possible, but the contemporary evidence does not support that. There's one account by an ambassador. Uh, that you describe her looking as miserable and downtrodden. Well, yes, actually, she was worried sick about a pretender who was claiming to be one of her brothers who was threatening her husband's throne. And she was also very ill in early pregnancy. And so that could account for the way she was when he actually saw her. But all the other evidence shows that this was a very happy marriage and a fruitful one and a marriage of partners, of cooperation. He's quite frugal, isn't he? Henry Seventh is known he as being... Agree. A bit tight. (laughs) He also knew, he understood the the Renaissance, the contemporary concept of magnificence, Mm. because that's how monarchs were judged by how splendid you were, you know, and how majestic you were. So he knew when to outlay money on that. He could be quite um, parsimonious in other ways. In fact, you know, the, the, I remember there's a lovely little anecdote of he used to do t- check all his own accounts and everything. And he had a pet monkey and it managed to chew up his account book. And of course, he thought this was wonderful because he was really, you know, seen as an old miser. He was careful. He'd learned in a hard school. And it's it's touching. I remember there's there's a wonderful television series that captures this perfectly. That it, uh, it is Elizabeth's um, account, um, you know, her privy purse accounts. She has to repair her shoes with tin buckles. And they make something obvious when she dies. And he, she's always short of money. And he's, you know, he's quite careful, keeps her on a tight rein in a way. Because I think that he he still saw her as, as, as the house of York, whereas he was the house of Lancaster, although they had united with the red and the white rose. Um, there is perhaps this little sort of tension in the marriage in that respect. But she never, once she becomes queen, after all these um, these intrigues beforehand, she loses her voice. We don't hear from her. We got the odd letter. 
and they're very formal letters, just what you would expect from a queen, but nothing. She's clearly, I think, quite content and she's achieved what she wanted to achieve. That's really interesting because I was literally, I mean, you're preempting all of my questions, which is brilliant. Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, that, that is great. I mean, basically, I can just sit here and, and lap all of this up, which is absolutely what I'm doing. Um, but I, I'm curious about that ability to influence, her, influence events going on around her, in part because I have this image in my head, certainly one that comes from a portrait of her in, in later life, of this very, I mean, you've said already a very pious woman, that certainly comes uh, through in, in yes. this image that I've seen but also quite a formidable looking woman, somebody who that doesn't, doesn't look as though... To me. That doesn't yeah. come across to me. No, okay. I, I would say the word is more gentle, actually. I mean, we're not talking about... I mean, Agnes Strickland wrote her lives, the Queens of England in Victorian times, and you think they're all wilting flowers to read her descriptions of them, but you had you had to be tough to a degree, you know, to, to survive in Renaissance courts. And courts were places of intrigue, but Elizabeth stayed aloof from that. But we do find instances of her exerting some, some influence in private and Henry consulting her, firstly on things like their children's marriages. Now, traditionally, queens had a right to be consulted, a right to be involved, because they, they, they played the female role, welcoming a bride for a son, um, being, looking after a daughter's trousseau. And, and they had, a, had a, a duty, as it were, to make sure their children were making good marriages or had good educations and that. So, so yes, he did. But what we, what we can't quantify is the influence that queens often wielded in private, because that's just not and what happens in the bedchamber. It's not recorded. So we don't know. But we do know that on one occasion, Henry took her, Elizabeth into his confidence about that when her brother-in-law, one of her sister's husbands, was going to be arrested for treason. And she, she clearly was very unhappy about this. Her sister was devastated. Elizabeth had a lot to support her. Her husband was in the tower. And, but she so definitely Henry trusted her. This is towards the end of their marriage. Gosh, this is, I'm going to have to take a, a detour from Zach's very carefully written notes here, Alison, and ask you about some of the other women who are around. Okay. So she's, she's got her mother. Um, she also has the mother-in-law of all mother-in-laws. Margaret, Margaret Beaufort. Now, How did Margaret she get on with Maggie B? Why do you say that? Because why does Margaret Beaufort have such a bad press? <laughs> according to her chaplain, John Fisher, um, he, you know, all who knew her loved her. Now, Clearly, she was a formidable lady. Mm. I wouldn't have liked to be one of her tenants who got on the wrong side of her and defaulted on rent, basically. But there are all sorts of ridiculous stories going around that she was the one who took out the princes in the tower. And it all stems from a television drama documentary from I think, the 1990s. <laughs> and there is a one contemporary source that accuses Margaret Beaufort of being involved. There's one vague 17th century source that said they'd seen a book somewhere that said it, you know, that it was it, it recorded that it was her. And I thought, well, actually, that's not what you would call evidence. It's far too late in the day. Margaret clearly got on well with Elizabeth. They worked in concert for various things. When, when it, it was proposed that Elizabeth's daughter, Margaret Tudor, was to marry the King of Scots, both she and Margaret Beaufort put pressure on the king not to let her marry too young because of what had happened to Margaret Beaufort, who'd married at 12 and born her first child, her only child, at 13, and was clearly damaged by it in one way or another. So they worked in concert and they were, they were often together. And I think Elizabeth welcomed this very kindly guidance from her mother-in-law and was clearly good with her. So I don't know where all this bad press for Margaret Beaufort is coming from. 
I think she was a, a very formidable woman. I certainly wouldn't have wanted her as a mother-in-law. <laughs> I'm not so sure. I mean, reading about her, you know, and what she, how, 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 what an interest, how much she loved her grandchildren, how careful she was for them, and how she, you know, she was, she seems to have been good with the family. Um, I'm keen to delve a little bit more into sort of the, the family and just start to to think about her sons for a moment. I mean, this is the woman who's she gives birth to Henry VIII. Yes, she does. And, and, you know, Henry VIII, like him or loathe him, another formidable individual in many senses. Um, yes. So I guess there are two kind of initial questions that I have here. One, to what extent do you see Elizabeth's character replicated in Henry? Because Henry obviously changes over the course of his life quite substantially. Oh, yes, he does. Yeah. But also, um, what do we know about what she thought about her son, Henry VIII? We don't know a lot about that. We just know that she, you know, she was she was a devoted mother, um, and it looks as if she was very close to Henry. There was a tradition at this time established by the House of York that the heir was sent away uh, to Ludlow Castle on the edge of the Welsh border, on the Welsh border, to learn the art of kingship. Uh, you know, while by gov- nominally governing his principality of Wales with the help of a council, that had happened to Elizabeth's own brother Edward V, and it happened to her her eldest son Arthur. And the eldest son was always associated with the king as the heir. It was the second son, it happened with Richard, Duke of York, it happened with Henry VIII, who was associated with his mother and was brought up near the court or in the court sometimes. And we can tell Elizabeth was pretty close to young Henry VIII because David Starkey has compared their handwriting and it's quite clear Elizabeth taught him to write. And that's quite hands-on for a medieval queen. As I said earlier, medieval queens, their duty was to ensure that their children were well looked after, that they had a good education, and that they married well. But they didn't do the day-to-day mothering. But in this case, it's quite clear that there was some sort of day-to-day hands-on mothering. And particularly, she took a role in his education. So definitely, from that point of view, um, I think they were close. I mean, could this be because Henry was... For all intents and purposes, despair at the beginning of his life. He wasn't. Well, I have a theory in the book, and it is only a theory, but it's Arthur was premature. Mm -hmm. And for the first, at least between six months and two years of his life, he he was born at Winchester. He was kept at Farnham Castle because, um, because he was frail. And he was frail from birth. Because of this prematurity, I mean, those days, um, premature children, I mean, there was a, an increased chance of dying in childhood or a serious illness. And we know from references that, you know, in, in, in the Spanish diplomatic calendar, that Arthur was sickly before he married, before Catherine of Aragon ever came to England. Mm. And also prematurity and separation from the mother can have an effect on the relationship, the bonding between mother and son. Now, I'm not, we don't know that this happened in this case, but I've, I've, I've used it theoretically as a, as a theme in the novel. Uh, Henry, of course, was, um, was, was a healthy baby and was close to, was brought up with his mother, by, you know, with his mother or near his mother in, in the palaces in the Thames Valley uh, from the start. And so I think there was a closer relationship. And the, 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 the evidence for it being a close relationship, not just the educational side, is that Henry genuinely grieved for his mother when she died. He was 11. And he, not quite 11, 
And there's a, it was discovered only recently, there's a manuscript called the Vox Passionale in the National Library of Wales in Cardiff. And it shows Henry VII enthroned one side, and on the other side is this exquisite little miniature showing a black draped mourning bed, an empty mourning bed, clearly for Elizabeth York. And sitting on the rug in front of a fire before it are two little princesses, Mary and Margaret. And kneeling by the bed with his head in his hands is a little red-headed boy, and that's Henry crying for his mother. And, he, and we have a letter from Henry written, in, written in, uh, on, the, on the death of the, the Archduke Philip, um, his, his, um, his brother-in-law. Um, well, he would have been, he will be his brother-in-law when he married Catherine of Aragon, it's Catherine of Aragon's brother-in-law. And he wrote, he said, never since the death of my dear mother have I received such hateful intelligence or something like words to that effect. Clearly, he adored his mother. And she died when he was perhaps too young to have seen her as a rounded human being with faults and failings. Maybe he idealised her and maybe she was the benchmark against which he measured all other women, notably his six wives. That's a pretty tantalising thought right mm -hmm. there. Um, yes. And you can yeah. see why Catherine of Aragon conforms to that. She is, she is the perfect medieval queen in every way, apart from the fact she can't give him a son. And Anne Boleyn doesn't conform to anything like that. Jane Seymour does. She's the complete antithesis of Anne Boleyn. But, but Catherine of Aragon, you could say, was our last medieval queen. But it, she, she is, she is the, the image of Elizabeth of York, apart from the fertility aspect. Can I ask about the predecessor, the, the, uh, the King Arthur, if you like, that England never oh. got? Because he died shortly before... Uh, she did. So how does she cope with that personal tragedy? Well, we have a very touching account, one of the few intimate accounts of a king and queen in their personal lives, because the news was Arthur died at Ludlow Castle and the news was brought to Henry um, by, by, by his confessor. And he came to him in the night and told him that, you know, if we receive good things from the hand of God, we must also receive you know, bad things or whatever. And he told him, your dearest son is departed to God. And Henry was absolutely broken, crushed. And he, they, they sent for Elizabeth to comfort him. And she put her own grief aside and she comforted him. And she said, put a bear in mind in this case that the, the year before she had born a son, but she had been, to, no, two years before she had born a son. And her life had been feared for during her pregnancy because she was so ill. And she hadn't conceived since. And she said to Henry when he was grieving, she said, she said, remember, God is still where he was, and we are both young enough. And, and then, of course, when she went back to her own chamber, it just hit her. And he was summoned, and he comforted her as well. And this is such a touching account, you know, and I've, I've, I've really re reproduced it almost word for word in the novel. And, and, but I do think there is some evidence, little bits of evidence, if you put them together, it suggests that some months later there was a bit of a rift between them, but I don't think it's to do with Arthur's death. I think it's to do with Henry's arrest of the, the husband of her, Elizabeth's sister, and also because one, another sister was banished from court for making a, a second marriage without the king's permission, and I don't think Elizabeth was very pleased with Henry about that. And one might wonder, given the testimony of the doctors, that why Henry allowed Arthur to leave London and travel to Ludlow in the depth of winter when he was so ill. Did she hold that against him? We don't know. There's so much we don't know. That's, so, that's, what, that's what's so sad about this subject. So a lot of it, you just have to go down the route when you're writing a novel, where, where you, what you think is the likeliest, the reality of it. That 
that brings us on to a question that, that we we have to ask you about having you here, Alison, and that's to ask you about your craft as an author and many challenges you must face in bringing a period to life. How do you go about giving voices to uh, perhaps quieter women in your novels whose letters aren't there and the, the documents aren't there? How do you do that? Well, you have to go on what is there. And you have to look at their letters. You have to look at as much as possible so you can find a voice for them. In Elizabeth's case, there are there is there is the, the letter um, on which her, 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 her pushing for the marriage to Richard III is based. Mm. There's also the, the ballad called The Song of Lady Bessie, which de- which um, details um, the, the effort she may well have made to assist Henry Tudor's invasion. Um, and those and these she's quite feisty. And this is why she's, you know, she, she becomes so quiet afterwards. And yet that you, it's by, then if you haven't got documentation, you look at actions and you infer what you can from that. And so I think, I mean, having sort of studied her on and off since I'll wait for this, the 1960s, um, I think, you know, I, I can get an approximation. I'm not going to be ever claim that I know Elizabeth of York. How can we at this distance in time? But I think you have to go with what, what you think is the best evidence. Do you think being a historian in some ways is a, a bit of a curse when it comes to, yes. to being a novelist? <laughs> I think my publishers might think that sometimes. <laughs> it's a bit academic. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, yeah, you have to be, you have to, I mean, I, I remember when I first my, wrote my first novel and I only wrote it for fun. It was just one of the several projects I undertook in my, you know, just my spare time just to see if I could write fiction because I'd written it years before and nothing I wanted published. And I liked it, and I showed it to my agent. He said, he said, it's great stuff, great story. He said, but it's faction. You've got to stop being a historian and start being a novelist and get off the fence. <laughs> so I put it in a drawer. A few years later, I had a gap between books. And I went back and rewrote it, wrote it in the first person, present tense. Uh, no history books written in that way. But I've learned with every single book, I've learned to show rather than tell. I've learned to, I mean, you don't just say like um, Elizabeth was angry. You show her being angry. She clenches her fist. You know, the reader's got to see it. And there are various ways you can do that, but it took me quite a while to grasp that. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. That's fantastic. Do you have any sort of writer's regrets? I, I want to keep kind of going with this um, kind of other half of the story because I think it's very rare to get somebody who has researched this. Obviously, all historical novelists have to research, but you are a historian as well as a historical novelist. And I'm really interested in that perspective. So I want to keep probing. But do you have any sort of writer's regrets across your novels? Are there any things that you've done or you've written that you've gone? Not so much my novels, my history books. Um, in, I had published a book called Henry VIII King and Court in 2001. Mm. And I've, from, I inferred from various historical sources that there was a possibility that Anne Boleyn was pregnant at the time she was beheaded. And that Henry VIII didn't know this. And that, but... It's, it's too slender. I mean I, I mean, I didn't come on, I hope, too strongly in the book, but my goodness, the press pounced on it. 
And I got eminent historians ringing me up saying, why are you saying this? <laughs> I wish to goodness I hadn't. <laughs> and there was a time I wrote a novel called The Lady Elizabeth and came out in 2008. And uh, I, of course, Elizabeth I was claimed to be the Virgin Queen. And I think she was right, actually. I think the evidence strongly suggests that. But I didn't, would like one day to write a book about that on its own. But, um, but I had her having a legitimate baby in this book. And oh my goodness, <laughs> outrage from readers. Why have you done this when you've said in history books, you know, you think she was a virgin queen? It's basically a what if, mm. because there is some evidence and it's, it's you know, uh, circumstantial or not good evidence, but it's there. If it wasn't there, I wouldn't be making much of it. And as a novelist, you can explore that. You can ask what if. As a novelist, you can explore a what if. And I always write, a long author's note in the end of a book to explain what's fact and what's fiction and why I've gone with the storylines. Um, but I do some, sometimes I think people don't see that. They actually email me before they finish the book and got there. Or I'm not sure it actually shows up on ebooks. I'm not sure whether author's notes are included because some people have said they haven't seen it. So, you know, I, I think it's essential to do that if you're writing historical novels because I know from feedback and from audiences at events that people care that they, they're getting the history from a historical novel. They want they want to know it's quite accurate. Mm. Well, I actually fictionalise a historical narrative. I wrote a biography of Elizabeth that was published in 2013, and that was my base. So I just literally fictionalised it, but I added, of course, embellished it as well with the fictional bits. But I I don't go too far. I go only as far as I think is credible. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Although some might disagree when it comes to Richard III, but... (laughs) 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 I'm not going to tell you where I'm going with Richard III in this particular book. (laughs) (laughs) Am I going to be upset, Alison? Uh, Your mother might be. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) I hope I've been fair to think. Was it like that? Of course, Elizabeth doesn't know. This is one of the big questions of her life. The fate of the princes in the tower is crucial to her own life, to her own fate, and what happens to her illegitimacy. And what did she think? We know that she adored her brothers and sisters. We've got good testimony from that from contemporary contemporary sources. And how did she feel? What must it have been like to know her brothers had just disappeared, to have to deal with her mother, who was who was in a terrible state about it, and and to think that her uncle to whom, you know, whom she probably admired and was, I wouldn't say close, because he wasn't always at court, but she obviously there was something between them. Mm. And um, because we know they shared books. Uh, but, but, you know, but how did she feel about this? It must have been a nightmare for her. 
And that was the, the cent- one of the central themes of the book, the one, the one I really wanted to explore. And of course, I don't think she found out for quite a long time what really happened. Do we do we even know now? Do you yes. Think we- I would say so. There were people, people would dispute it. But I think the clue lies in the Minaresses convent, in, which was at near Aldgate without near the Tower of London. And we, and it's all to do with James, Sir James Tyrrell's confession. Sir Thomas More names James Tyrrell as the man who actually organised the actual murder of the princes on Richard III's orders. And there are links to James Tyrrell and to people who were in the Tower who were in the position to know. And Elizabeth uh, was in touch with, with the abbess of the Minories at that time, Henry VII, she and Henry VII were at the tower at the time Tyrrell is made, said to have made this confession. I think there is, and so I think we do know what happened, yes. And I think that Thomas More, who wrote his history, also knew, had, knew someone at the Minnery. So that is where the key to the mystery lies. I firmly believe that. We love the mystery. If it was shown evidence that, there was, that it wasn't right, then I'd be going with that. That's that's the fun thing about these mysteries is there's always new evidence turning up and always things to. You can only go with the evidence when it comes yeah. to something like this. Um, you cannot just start with a theory and try and fit the evidence around it. I mean, I had someone post on Facebook oh, sometime a little while ago saying, "Oh, I know it was definitely Richard III. I know I've read it. It's in the White Queen." I thought, "What about <laughs> how good a novel it is? It's a novel. You cannot rely, you can't rely on my novel. You can't rely on anyone's novel. It's you know." It's, it's you know, and somebody says that Richard III didn't do it. He was such a nice man. We don't know he was such a nice man. We have enough evidence to say that. And that this is what concerns me. You know, we, we we don't know these people. They lived a long time ago, and the sources for them, uh, for, for their actions, are nothing like they are fifty years later for Henry VIII's reign. I uh, I have equivalent horror stories of um, people attributing or misattributing quotes oh. to um, historical figures, not least Wellington. Um, that I will save for another day. I want to just kind of circle back ever so slightly and sort of wrap up Elizabeth's story, if we can, um, and just sort of ask, because we were talking about, you know, those those latter years of her life, how she coped with uh, the death of Arthur, her son, which happened only a few months before her own death, if I've got my dates right. So, ten months before, ten months beforehand. Yeah. What? How, why? How does she die? What? What is the cause of death? Do we even know that? that? Well, well, we don't know exactly. I mean, the problem is with, with, there. There isn't much of a description of what actually happened. She died in childbed, but she died a little while after the child was born, um, on her thirty seventh birthday, actually. Now, there is a theory, and it's a very credible one, that she suffered from iron deficiency anemia because repeatedly pregnancies can drain a woman of her, her, reser- her reserves of iron and it can lead to all sorts of complications. That can mean difficult pregnancies. It can be in premature birth, which happened with Arthur because that's the first child. But also it can lead to um, perinatal mortality and, and maternal death. And this is what happened because the child she had in the Tower of London, in, in, uh, uh, she wasn't prepared for it. She was going to be confined at Richmond, but the child clearly came early um, in February 1503. The child was a daughter, Catherine, and she lived about less than, less than a month. And Elizabeth started to recover and then she became seriously ill. And there was clearly a panic because her physician had actually gone home to his house at Gravesend. And uh, Henry VII summoned him back. You know, he was going to send escorts and people with torches to light his way and fast boats and everything. But he got there too late. She died. Gosh, 
What was her funeral like? Lavish, very lavish. We actually have an illustration of it. And uh, it's, um, and, uh, you know, it was a ceremonial procession. Um, Thomas More wrote a wonderful eulogy and um, about her. And the, it was there, was, there was a huge national mourning. The king was devastated. He put on dark blue mourning, which was the colour in those days of royal mourning, and retired, you know, in, 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 into privacy because he wanted to be alone to, to grieve. And um, he, his character deteriorated in the years after her death. He reigned for another seven years. And uh, he, there, were talk, there was talk of marrying again, but it never happened. And, um, but um, he must have missed her. I mean, his world must have been very empty without her. And that there was talk. He was close to, wait, wait for this. And there'd been a pretender, Perkin Warbeck, who had, um, you know, pretended to be Richard, Duke of York. And it, it plagued Henry for about seven years. And uh, up to his time, his execution, execution in 1499. And um, but Warbeck was married. He seems to have taken in that the, you know, the Holy Roman Emperor, the King of France, the King of Scots. Although, of course, some perhaps they were happy to be taken in to discountenance Henry VII. But he would he'd been given a kinswoman of the of the, um, of the King of Scots to marry. Her name was Catherine Gordon. Mm. And it's Henry, when. Perkin Morgett was captured in 1497. His wife was taken too, and she was brought before Henry, who was very, very gentle with her. And he and Sir Francis Bacon said, you know, it's to please his eye as well as his fame that he was nice to her. And uh, he gave her a lavish wardrobe. He sent it away upon Elizabeth. And after Elizabeth died, they were so close, it was thought they might marry, but it didn't happen. So this is the only hint that Henry ever looked at another woman other than his wife, but whether it went beyond looking is very unlikely. Wow. Do you think Elizabeth took her in because she was his brother's wife? Well, this is it. That was the king's idea. He sent her to wait on his wife. Mm-hmm. And she was, she, she, you know, she, she, Elizabeth clearly liked her. She, was, she became very, Catherine Gordon became very popular at court. And um, there's no hint of scandal attached to her name. But one wonders, what, I mean, she, Henry treated her like this because she was a king's woman of the King of Scots. Mm. And at this time, he was planning to marry his daughter, Margaret, to the King of Scots, and clearly wanted to be on good terms with him. So looking after the King of Scots, um, with James, James IV's you know, kinswoman is, is one way of doing that. Um, but Elizabeth, one wonders if Elizabeth wondered, is he? Because at this point, she hadn't actually seen the pretender. And we still don't know what she thought made of him when she did see him, because it's not recorded. But um, there was Henry had evidence that he wasn't who he, the Richard Duke of York, and he was actually the son of a customs master to an eye. And so, and there was probably probably Richard III's sister, Margaret of Burgundy, was perhaps behind this imposture. But um, one wonders if Elizabeth entertained some doubt. Would she have known her brother after all those years? Her brother disappeared in 1483. She saw Perkin Warbeck in 1497. 14 years. Would she have known? It's it's a such a what if I've I've always tried to imagine if I would recognize my brother at 12, if I'd recognize him 14 years later as the man he grew into. And men fill out, men fill out and they become more angular, you know, their their features harden and that, you know, and that. But but, I mean, look at pictures of my own daughter who at that that age, I'd still recognize her now. She's in her 30s now. Mm -hmm. But it's but I think it might be more difficult. And if you look at the drawing of Perkin Warbeck, my God, you can see Edward IV in him. Mm. But the, he could have been a bastard, but it's very unlikely. It just ha- It's a happy coincidence that he looked like him, and that's probably why he was pounced on. 
Of course, because as as we know, all English people are now descent from Edward the Fourth. Because yeah. he did plenty. Alison, this has just been uh, oh, it's been brilliant. It's been such a riot. Thank but before so I've enjoyed it very much. Uh, before we let you go, I just want to ask a, a bit of a funny if i may um you're massively widely sold hugely well known legions of fans do you have any sort of crazy fan stories to share with us any sort of funny moments any sort of quirky um, little things that you know you're happy to to let loose into the world no, now you've asked me um i've had well i've had various hairy hairy um, experiences um, one was um, in, in um, it was the University Bookshop in Seattle. And I was doing an event during an American book tour. And we're talking about um, Mary the First. And we were talking about how kings and the Reformation and kings and queens de- decreed literally what people would believe and how they would worship. You know, we had the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation. I was talking about this. And this man who is of Middle Eastern appearance in the audience suddenly started saying, was it right that kings and queens could dictate this people's beliefs? And I said, well, right or not, it happened. We're looking at it, you know, from this perspective. Mm. And he would not let it go. And it got to the stage I couldn't shut him up. And it got rather scary because the the organisers, I had a media escort with me. She was looking nervous. And um, she and my husband was getting concerned. And this guy was holding a carrier bag and he kept putting his hand in it. And, and I could think, oh, my God, what have you got in there? Nice. My husband thought he had a bomb. I thought he had a gun. They, they wound up the event because clearly people's heads were buzzing to and forth between us. I'm trying to get this guy to shut up and he wouldn't. And then and so they, anyway, they, they wound up the talk and I had to sit in the corner with a queue along one row of bookshelves. And I felt very exposed. Everyone else got up and either joined the queue or left. He just sat there. And my husband was sitting not far, keeping an eye and watching him. And he was still putting his hand inside his carrier bag. And in the end, he wandered off and looked through around the bookshelves. And I thought, he's waiting for me. He's waiting to pounce for some reason. I was, I was really frightened by them. And the media escort, the bookshop proprietor said, uh, or the manageress, as soon as he nipped off to the loo, we dashed, they dashed me downstairs to the car. And we really, we really belted it away. And they even changed the restaurant. Wow. So it, it was a bit scary. Probably it was quite harmless, but you just don't know in these situations. And then I thought the hotel was haunted when I got back. We won't go into that. <laughs> Gosh, that sounds amazing. I mean, we were, we were just thinking, you know, the, the purists trying to uh, trying to take you down because they didn't like what, what you said on page 31 about a belt buckle that also they wouldn't have had at that time. And You get that. I mean, you get, I mean, somebody wrote to me once and said about my, my book on the Prince in the Tower, which is now retitled Richard III and the Prince in the Tower in the wake of his bones being found. And she said, me, she said wrote, this was the age people wrote letters. And there's only one place for your book on the Prince in the Tower, and that's the waste paper bin. Nice. So I just said, I said, well, fancy writing, taking the trouble to actually send a letter and stamp it and send that to someone, you know, feel like that. And um, I know, and because you can give two historians the same sources and they can come up with something completely different. Mm. It's all a matter of interpretation. It reminds me of um, when we had Simon Scarrow on uh, a few months back and he was talking about how somebody had um, tried to take him apart for um, calling Duke of Wellington Arthur Wesley because yeah. his name uh, for a good chunk of his life was Arthur Wellesley. And the guy just completely got the facts wrong mm. and hadn't realised that actually 
Wellington wow. was born Arthur Wesley, and then the family name gets changed partway through Wellington's life. And so he, you know, Simon was saying, you know, this guy had clearly felt good about himself. He'd written his letter, he'd put a stamp on it. And you just oh. think, what, what's the matter with these people that they need oh. to get a right like this? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I know. I mean, I mean, I think you just have to respect other people have different views. And sometimes, I mean, I post, I don't post about Richard III on my Facebook page because Elizabeth I is appearing there now. And I've had some responses in there, and I, I could easily go back and argue and argue. I don't upset people. If they, they're entitled to their views, but I know I could refute it with evidence. And then they'd probably come back with something else, you know. And, I, and some of it's based on something, very slender evidence, you know. And I think, you know, if we go back to the sources, look at them, and then make up your mind and then come and argue with me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I think, yeah. Get your get your sources right, then we'll have a then we'll have an argument. And if you still think it's right, well, fair enough. But not if it's not if you you know you're coming up with something. That I can clearly just say, well, I'm sorry that didn't happen at that time. <laughs> and I think you're definitely right not to get involved on on social. Well, I don't upset anyone. I really don't because I mean I know what it's like. Especially I would never give anyone a bad review for a book because I know what, how much work goes into a book. Exactly, exactly. Um, there is one question that I, I want to end on, if that's okay, Alison, and it's probably, it will be one that you've heard a million times, oh, and you're, you're going to roll your eyes, um, oh. but there's going to be somebody listening who would be really disappointed if I didn't ask you this question. Oh. So what advice would you give to an aspiring historical novelist? Right, show rather than tell, as I said earlier. That is very important and that, and let the reader see it happening. Don't just write a narrative, create scenes. Mm. So they feel it's real. And the other bit of advice is never give up. I like that. Hang on in there. <laughs> I never thought it would happen to me and it did. That's a really positive point um, and, and a nice note on which to end. Alison, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for Thank giving you up so your much. time. Okay, I've so enjoyed it. It's been a great, great fun. A really nice occasion. Thank you. Thanks for it's, inviting me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Folks, you're listening to this. Um, Elizabeth of York, The Last White Rose, is out now because we're releasing it at the time that the book comes out head to the history hack bookstore we will have all of allison's previous novels and historical works available to buy through that um if that doesn't take your fancy you'll be able to find it in pretty much any bookstore that's worthy of the name um you'll also find details of allison online on her website just google the lady i mean she sold what, three million copies. She's very easy to, to track down. Alison, I know you're going on tour, aren't you? Uh, are details of your tour online? Yes, I know. I uh, yes there are. So there's a website called Alison Weir Tours and it starts next Monday. Fantastic. And we'll be announcing new tours in June for next year. Brilliant. Alison, thank you so much for your time. It's been a joy. Thank you very much, Zach. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.